Greetings, OOUXers. I am very excited to introduce you to Rin Pope, if you don't already know him. So when I first heard Rin Pope on Jorge Arango's podcast, The Informed Life, which I would recommend, I knew I wanted to interview him for myself. So I tracked down Rin, and I tracked down some of his presentations on meta metadata and on ontology, and I just knew we would have fun geeking out about information architecture, and I was not wrong. So Rin's got a background in technical writing, data analysis, knowledge management, and he is currently a senior staff data modeler and ontologist at Etsy. So basically what that means is when a new niche of handmade products emerges, like miniature felted forest creatures or something like that, he he's the one that figures out how that category should be sorted and filtered. It is absolutely fascinating work. He has a fascinating story as well. And I just, I'm, I sure hope you are ready to nerd out. All right, let's jump into it. Welcome to the Object or UX podcast, a podcast about tackling complexity head on, gracefully organizing massive amounts of information, and designing scalable, future-proof, and of course, naturally intuitive object-oriented user experiences. An OUXer is a powerful blend of information architect, business analyst, facilitator, and UX strategist. If this sounds like you or what you aspire to, you are so in the right place. I'm Sophia Prater, UX designer, chief evangelist of Object or UX, and your host. Let's jump into it. Rin Pope, welcome to the Object Drawing UX podcast. Yeah, thank you. So um, I uh, I found out about you. I sort of met you um, through Jorge Arango's podcast, um, which was fascinating to me. And I actually kind of wanted to start there with something that um, that I thought was really interesting about your history. And that's your mom, that your mom was a computer scientist. And I don't want you to, uh, to date yourself too much, but can you just give us like what decade were you kind of uh, c- coming coming into yourself? Well, I, I, I'd say it would be the um, mid '80s. Okay, mid '80s. So, yep. so um, a woman computer scientist in the mid '80s—that's probably pretty rare. Um, what was that like growing up with your mom um, as a computer scientist? Well, it, it was awesome. I mean, uh, it was awesome to learn from her. It was not awesome because she was a straight A student. Uh, so she expected that from me as well, too. So that was kind of a challenge. But uh, uh, I learned a, a great deal from her in uh, in computing and statistics and data. And I just got the bug and have had it ever since. Was she actively teaching you this uh, material? Um, was this like, you know, you would get home from school and then there would be like school part two? Or was it you were just kind of gleaning this and picking it up from the work that she was doing and uh, maybe sometimes talking about over the dinner table? Uh, I'd say it was mainly, well, she started working from home and she brought home a computer and I had taken a computer class in junior high. So therefore I was the most computer savvy kind of person because it was the modern computing and, and everything. So I uh, helped her, um, set up the home computer. And after I accidentally, this is the, my, my first foray into DOS. And after hitting del dot, uh, uh, delete star dot star at the, at the root directory and deleting a lot of stuff, uh, she insisted that I learn a lot more, a lot quicker. So, um, <laughs> and, uh, and I did, and a lot of stuff gleaned off, but where she really started teaching me was, uh, she got me an internship at her healthcare company where I worked in uh, the data architecture shop as a technical writer. And I, I did a little bit more than technical writing. I actually started looking at the data structures and that just, you know, sent me further down the path. And so was she more on that, that data architecture side as well, or was she programming? Like what was, what was her role versus what you were doing as an intern? Uh, She was more of a data analyst. So um, she, she was a master of, of, uh, SAS, the statistical analysis tool. Um, and so the, the healthcare company would, uh, generate and get tons and tons of data and information. And she would do the analysis crunch, the 
data analysis, statistical analysis, and then uh, to make informed business decisions. And what I was doing, I, I worked in the data architecture shop. So we scraped all the metadata from the database tables. And uh, my main job was to document uh, that, that scrape and understand the, the metadata. But uh, they also kind of let me kind of poke around in the metadata too and, and kind of move things around and see how that works. So it was a very valuable uh, lesson. So this was when you were in, um... You were in your, I guess, late teens, early 20s. You were in actually in, in, in high school. I'm sorry. You were in high school when you got this first internship or this is right after high school? This is in college, right. This is in, okay. So, so I, did, I did my college, my college intern at my mom's. But when, you were, when you were in high school in the, um, in the 80s, you were kind of dabbling with, right. with computers and... Um, yeah. Yes, I guess you said did I did I have like like school 2.0. There was one thing. There was we had a uh, biology project that I uh, needed to do in high school and uh, my mother helped me build a database to collect data for that biology experiment. So uh, and, and I was the only geek nerd in the class I was actually doing it in a database because back then databases were you know not as accessible as they are now. So uh um, she kind of set up the environment. She kind of told me, this is a table. This is what you do. This is what you're, how you're supposed to build it. So I guess, yes, back in high school, that's where she started me in, in that one, wow. one experience. And that was our base. To, so you were, you were a nerd before it was cool to be a nerd. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I, I was the prototypical nerd. Yeah. So for all the, um, all the, the younger folks listening where it's like, it's, it's cool to be a nerd now in high school. Um, yeah. I mean, even when I, when I was in high school in the nineties, it definitely was not, wasn't cool to be, uh, to, um, know a lot about computers. Computers were not cool yet. <laughs> um, so kind of moving forward when you were, how did you, um, this was before people were throwing around the term information architecture. Um, how did you kind of bridge in from data analysis and um, uh, scrubbing metadata from tables um, into the world of information architecture? I, I guess it started in college. Uh, my degree was in technical writing, but I focused on electronic documentation and content really as data. Um, although we didn't call it back then that, we just called it technical writing. And um, this is even a little bit before like HTML. Um, the World Wide Web really kicked off about three months after I graduated, which um, hmm. uh, I, I don't know, I, uh, either a little bit ticked that I wasn't able to learn more about it in college, but uh, anyways, uh, so I, I did that. And then my first job that I had coming out of college, I was in the Air Force uh, as an Air Force officer. And I was an information management officer. So um, I, I had systems to uh, create and or manage to manage like personnel data and some other things. So um, then I went to the Air Force's school for um, computer and information and just kind of further that along. So this, I'm, I'm kind of throwing, I'm going off script here a little bit. Um, so, so when I hear information management with the Air Force, mm -hmm. I think UFOs. <laughs> well, you know, the funny <laughs> thing is- Do you my... have access to any UFO data that you can tell us about? <laughs> right. So the uh, very, uh, I guess, ironically, my first, uh, my first duty assignment was Cannon Air Force Base, New Mexico, which was the closest- active duty Air Force Base to Roswell, but, mm -hmm. right. So right. you maybe know some things. <laughs> All I know is that New Mexico is awfully flat. And if they're hiding UFOs at Roswell, then they're taking algebra because I believe Roswell Air Force Base is now a community college, so. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they, I don't think the aliens need algebra. I think they're kind of beyond <laughs> that. Um, <laughs> They're, they're doing some really advanced calculus, I'm guessing. Right. Um, so uh, I, I, re bring, I, re I bring that up because one of, my, um, one of my first like information architecture heavy projects was with the Mutual UFO Network. Oh, interesting. Um, and if you think about the data coming in from UFO reports and how messy that data is, um, but also how complex and like to really kind of crunch those numbers. I mean, you have... Um, 
crunch that data, you have um, the, is it, you know, did you see a craft? Were there entities? Um, or was it an actually, was it an abduction that you want to report? Um, and then when you get into just saying, okay, we saw a craft. Okay, how many people saw it? Um, and then all the shapes and sizes and um, how far away it was from you. Um, if you want to see one of the worst web forms on the internet, you can go to report a UFO from uh, <laughs> MUFON.com slash report a UFO. Um, it is uh, just a bunch of check boxes. It's like a sea of check 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 boxes wow um but yeah that was a that was a fun project so i'm i'm looking over here by the way because all my my notes are over here mm -hmm. um so when you were at university of baltimore you were focused on something i'm, I'm pulling from your linkedin content and navigational navigation modeling um and this was like back in like 2008 era so what did content and navigation modeling look like that? Does it look the same as what it looks like now? Or were you doing something kind of different? Uh, I'd say it looks a little bit now, I guess, uh, for content modeling, it was taking. Uh, so for example, so you, you, you know, the uh, uh, internet has kind of reduced content to sound bites. I mean, heck, we have Twitter where we get it down to, you know, 130 characters. But I was interested in being able to do the architecture of very long form documents. So if you had uh, um, a, a large report, a book, something of that nature, how do you turn that into an electronic document? This goes back to my undergraduate. Uh, how do you make that into a online presence and make it highly usable, uh, searchable, discoverable, all of those things? Uh, so that was the content modeling part. Um, and then at the time, uh, professionally, uh, I was doing a lot of that where my, my job pretty much consisted of doing that is understanding people were writing long form documents and needed to put them online. And we just didn't want to put them online as a, as a PDF and have the user say, okay, to the re reader go, okay, just read, you know, 35 pages, you know, but really giving that reader uh, a good understanding of what, what was in that document and how to find that right information without having to read those 35 pages. Um, Interesting. So as to, do you, um, do you read a lot of digital books? Do you have a, are you a Kindle user? Uh, I have been in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I actually use my Kindle so much, Kindles, that I've burned them out and I just haven't gotten a new one yet. But, uh, okay. you know, um, I, uh, I'm all about the, so I don't have a Kindle, but if I can reach over here gracefully, I have a Remarkable, uh, oh. which uh, is a digital notepad. Um, so that's more of the writing experience than the reading experience, but, uh, I thoroughly enjoy Kindle, especially the X-ray, like the Amazon X-ray architecture is just amazing where they over overlay like metadata on top of content. You know, you can do that with their movies, but you can also do that on the Kindle. So you get access to all of the characters, the plot, trivia, um, things that it, it's almost like if, uh, an author wants to do like a director's cut of the book, if you will. They can do that within in the X-ray um, platform. So I thoroughly enjoy Kindle, and that's that's kind of like part of that navigation modeling, being able to navigate to external content and mapping it back in, in the same space that the actual content is in. So, is there anything that you are not yet seeing in in the design of eBooks that you would like to be seeing, or that you feel like is coming in the future? Um. Well, I, I just say that type of experience like x-ray. So being able to extract out those entities like people, places, things, being able to, to do that in a, in a, so a lot of times it's haphazard where they, they'll just have like a search list um, and the, the application will, as it's going through the document, will hit that search term and then add a link. Mm -hmm. But to actually have a better architecture to say, here are all the entities, here are all, uh, you know, providing taxonomies in the background to say, you know, this entity is a person, show me all the people that are around that. Um, this is a concept like Christmas, you know, so, so more, uh, richer architectures and environments uh, in, and again, it, it, it's hard because the long form document is dying uh, with the advent of the internet or mm -hmm. the, I, not the advent, but the, the um, 
continuation of the internet, the maturity of the internet. So uh, to have those kind of um, type of experiences where you're reading large volumes is kind of going away. Uh, and I, I wish it wouldn't, I wish it would stay around, but. I, I read, so Mark Manson recently wrote something about how actually people are going much shorter and also much deeper, but that the medium form is actually what's dying. That like, Correct. like books, I don't, I mean, is there data actually showing that books that people are reading fewer books no, but I, I, th I think it's more of the online presence. So if you were to mm -hmm. take a look at the internet in, in um, 1997, you would have pages that were scrolled and scrolled and scrolled and scrolled. People would have put on, you know, like online documents and not just as a PDF, but actual HTML where you could give a little bit more interaction. But now to, to find experiences like that, they're, they're kind of going away. So the, the, I don't think the book is dying per se. I just think the online long um, narrative mm -hmm. is kind of, kind of going away, especially as we're going into mobile, you know, uh, I mean, everything is, I mean, heck, we can't even get a video past five seconds with something like Snapchat. So. Right. Um, so I was thinking just kind of uh, doing some quick brainstorming on what, like what might be really cool to see in, um, in eBooks um, or Kindle books. Um, so, and, and tell me if this already exists. Cause I'm very much a paper reader. I've never had a Kindle before. Um, you there's should try it. What's that? You should try it. I know I, I'm, I'm actually the highlights and having different kinds of highlights and then being able to export your highlights. Mm, that sounds really useful because um, I'm definitely an active reader. Lots of notes in the margins. And then I, you know, have to go back over and take them or type them out in Evernote, um, which does help kind of solidify some of the concepts versus highlighting and exporting. But mm -hmm. um, what, one thing I was thinking of is like how like actually books could be connected to each other through character or through like take a historical character um, like, you know, uh, Alexander Hamilton just came up in my head. So you have Alexander Hamilton mentioned in one book, like can it actually extrapolate and say, OK, here's six other books that you might like, or like kind of jump from book to book. Right. Yes. Yeah. That, that's one. And two, you know, so Alexander Hamilton, that, so that, that's a good thing. So when, when having that semantic understanding of Alexander Hamilton, are you talking about the person, the play, um, mm -hmm. uh, the high school in Iowa named, you know, Alexander yeah. Hamilton high school, so being aware, so when the reader is reading about the play and it links you out, it could link you out to where it's played, maybe the Wikipedia article on the play or the musical, not the, not the actual person, but also giving the context. Well, the musical is based on the actual person. Oh, and then not only is there Alexander Hamilton, the real person, there's the play, but then there's the character in the musical who is distinctly different than the actual person, historical person. So do you want to know more about the character in the play? Um, I keep on saying play, musical. Uh, so being able to distinctly identify what you're reading about and being able to link out, you know, and that's, that's the navigation modeling there is getting, now that you model the content, model exactly uh what you can navigate to and and uh different types so for example if you have people uh that you have identified in your text you may want to always link out to wikipedia youtube um and and another type of resource if it's a product you may want to you know link out to all your e-commerce kind of sites so you know mm -hmm. um and the user actually might want to control that as well and decide, you know, how you let, how do you put user settings over this to say, I always want to pull from Wikipedia versus I always want to pull from, you know, I prioritize this source over this source. Um, so we're not there yet, right? With that kind of. Yeah, no, no, we're not there. Um, uh, you know, we're not there yet. Um, but I, I can see something like that in the future.
Yes, definitely. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question that I got recently about this, because definitely this is what I teach as well is let's, let's hyper-connect everything. Let's make sure we understand the nature of these things, the difference between the, the historical character and the fictional character and the play, um, you know, versus the movie versus, <laughs> and really, you know, identifying your objects um, and making sure that they're labeled correctly and understanding that this is an instance of that versus an instance of this. So, and then of course, modeling the hell out of that. So you really understand how these things sit in context because so often things are defined by their context um, and how they relate to other things. Right. The question that I got recently was, when are we overconnecting? So when are we actually um, doing our the users a disservice by giving them so many options? Um, you know, I had my answer, but I would like to hear what um, what you would say. I mean, specifically in this instance of reading a, an ebook and all of a sudden you can be connected to so many different things versus just, you know, sitting down and reading through the book. Right. A exactly. So one, I think, is that that user choice that you you brought up is, you know, for me, I, give me 3000 choices. I don't mind. I'll, I'll wait through them. Uh, someone who is very focused on the narrative uh, let them give them the ability to, to dial back. So I, um, I'm going to use, I guess, the, the, uh, the duck on water analogy. Um, so when a duck is on the water and you see it, it's, you know, gracefully gliding along the water. Mm -hmm. But if you're underwater, you would see the feet paddling away like crazy to make it just move that smoothly. So I, I think whatever system or architecture you have, uh, it should be like the duck's feet. It should be crazy. All the connections should be there. But what you expose to the user dic is dictated by that user requirement and experience that you need. So right. um, I, I, I'm, I, I err on connect everything correctly. And yeah, then... I, I, we're, we're on the same page there, um, so to speak. So the, my answer to that, and I think that I gave kind of a cop-out answer, but my answer to that was first we need to differentiate um, you know, connect, like what is the, is the user in exploratory mode or is the user in get shit done mode? Um, so for example, if we know that the user is in um, that get shit done mode, they're like going through a funnel. Um, let's say they're in their, their checkout. And the, I think that's kind of where the question was coming from. Like, do we really want to be like giving people options to get out of a, a flow that we have put them in? And my answer mm -hmm. to that was like, let's say I'm in that, that checkout and I'm looking at a product and I've seen checkouts like this before where I'm looking at a product. And if I want to go back to the details of that product, like, wait a second, mm -hmm. did I get the right size? Let me go back to my size chart. They don't let me do that. I'm kind of the walls have been put up and I am in checkout now and there is no way out. I need to open up a new tab in my browser, search for that product again to get back to the detail page to, you know, reinforce, to make sure that I know what I'm getting. And to me, my answer is that's a dark pattern. Like we've we've put them in a funnel. We're saying this is the flow that we've designed for you and you're stuck mm -hmm. in it um, versus giving in, them the option to connect to any any type of object that might be within that flow. Um, whatever that flow is. Now, we don't want to give mm -hmm. them a lot of shiny things that they could accidentally click on and kick themselves out of a process, right. but we should still be connecting. Would you agree with that or do you have anything to add to that? All right. Yeah. So, the you know, th that's a, that's a kind of like an experience level. Um, and, and, and yes, you know, giving, giving people the understanding. And I guess that's looking at the, you know, modeling that experience. It's like, what, what are all the things that a person can do when they're actually engaging the system and then being able to kind of predict that and give them the opportunity to do that. Um, when it comes to kind of like information that's, you know, the, in, within the system or that the system is kind of managing if it's external, you know, if we keep using the uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, there, there's certain truths that will always be there. You know, Alexander Hamilton's a person, a musical, a character, could be a school or a landmark. Uh, you know, there's m many different things. So, so being able to identify those and, and record those, even though you may not use it in a particular scenario, um, it's still good to have them because a specific user may, may need to use that and to be able to have an adaptive experience so that they can uh, expose that for themselves that another user may not need, you know, um, uh, one user may never want to know how many high schools in the United States 
are named after Alexander Hamilton. But there may be that those three people that say, I, I really, really want to know that from the experience that you're uh, that, that, that you're, you're going from. So, so, you know, asserting truth, I, I think is typically always good. You always have to understand that, you know, uh, system resources are limited. And if you try to make every single connection in the world, um, uh, that's, that's not uh, reasonable, but, you know, yeah, if you're connecting to everything, then, then, you know, you're basically connecting to nothing. <laughs> you're connecting yeah, to right. everything. Um, so I, I absolutely love that. You have to expose the truth. And this is something that I talk about all the time is sometimes, is, and I would like to hear what you think about this, that this idea that as information architects, we're not necessarily designing the architecture. We are doing a lot of detective work to figure out what is the truth of this system and then how do we communicate that truth of the system in a nice, in a, in a, with clarity? Right, exactly. So I, I say that, you know, a lot of times we say we're doing architecture where we're designing something, you know, to, to build, to build it. I, we always, I always go back to the traditional architecture of a building. You know, you start off before you even lay the concrete, you start off with making the designs based on the requirements of the customer and do all of those things. But a lot of times I think it's more information archeology span than it is information architecture yes. where you kind of put on your pith hat and you kind of have to chip away at the old, you know, stone and dirt to find out the truth of what the heck, you know, you're, you're working on a system that already exists and, figure out what their intent was and where everything is buried and expose that and then, you know, repurpose it. So. Oh my gosh. I love that. I often call it detective work, but I think that archeology span is such a better analogy. So often I do feel like I'm less of an information architect and more of an information archeologist. Like what is happening here? What is the story here? What is, what is the truth of this business? And what is the truth of how the user is thinking about this business or this problem domain? And how do we basically, so when they go into this digital environment that is inherently, inherently going to be unintuitive because it's digital and we're, we're, you know, we are physical creatures that have evolved without the digital world. How do we make, how do we sort of mimic that truth as much as possible so that when a user comes into that environment, they're like, oh yeah, here are my things. And they, they're connected in a way that they, connect in the real world around me. Right, right, exactly. Uh, right, and that, that's uh, the, the big thing is, you know, we're, um, we're, we're kind of uh, the architects of, uh, of that, that virtual dimension. And, and that has problems in itself because, you know, we're, we're creating the physics and, and everything that goes along with it and translating something, you know, try to, you know, it's like perspective when you have a cube and you want to draw it and taking it from a 3d cube and, and translating that into a 2d drawing, we're kind of mapping the physical world into this virtual dimension. And uh, you know, that has challenges on its own. Hey y'all, just a quick interruption. As of this recording, we are in the midst of cohort four of the OUX certification and enrollment for cohort five won't open up until early summer 2021. But you can dig into all the certification video content, all the templates, all the resources by grabbing access to the OUX masterclass. And if, after going through the masterclass, you want to get certified, you'll be able to apply the cost of the masterclass to your enrollment in cohort five. So you can kind of think about it like a down payment. Once you enroll in the masterclass, you'll get access to the OUX Academy. And over the course of 10 weeks, about two to three hours of video lectures will be released to you each week. But you can consume that content totally at your own pace. You'll have lifetime access to it. So if it needs to take, if it takes you 20 weeks to go through it, that's totally fine. You're not just gonna get video content. You're gonna get checklists. You're gonna get exercises. You're gonna get assignments and tons of valuable resources. Basically everything you need to become an expert complexity wrangler. Again, you get everything that a certification cohort gets just minus all those personal touches the camaraderie of the cohort in the OUX forum, access to the OUX mentors, the one-on-ones with me, um, as well as me answering all your questions in the forum and in office hours, and of course, the actual certification and a profile on OUX.com. So for all of that, you'll need to actually join a cohort, but you don't have to wait. You can start becoming that complexity wrangling, stakeholder whispering, 
IA facilitator extraordinaire now. You can start saving yourself and your team countless hours of rework. And you can start saving your user from the extraneous complexity that OUX helps you avoid. So go to OUX.com slash certification to learn more. From there, you can get on the wait list for cohort five, as well as get yourself access to that entire video library that is the OUX Masterclass. Still not sure if you're ready to take the plunge? Go check out the testimonials on OUX.com. Okay, back to the show. So do you have any, this is a question I've been asking a lot on the podcast. Um, do you have, so as we are creating the physics mm -hmm. and often breaking the laws of physics that our <laughs> users' brains are used to, um, that's, I mean, that's the point of technology is to break the laws of physics. You can be in two places at once. We can have this conversation across um, hundreds of miles. Um, you know, I can search the Amazon warehouse in like less than a second. Like I'm breaking the laws of physics basically by doing that. Um, so it turns us into these superheroes, but it can also confuse the hell out of us. So how do we know like when to break what laws of physics or is it about bending the laws of physics? But like, what would you say? Are there any good rules of thumb that you use to know when we can break those laws or redesign them? Well, I, I think it's uh, having a clear um, understanding of, um, of what you're designing. And when you design it, that you're probably creating you may be creating something that's never been there before. So a good example would be, think about the first time a file folder on a computer was made. Um, you, you know, uh, the, all the things that we, that we take for granted now, delete a file, uh, delete a folder, uh, move a folder, move a file, uh, open a file, uh, open a folder. Um, they may not, if you talk to somebody, you know, from a hundred years ago, they may not have, uh, if you were to say those notions or things, they wouldn't understand what action to take. So when you, as a designer, create this cool thing, a folder, and uh, you have to understand you're, for the first, how many ever iterations, you're going to have to teach people what it means to interact with the virtual notion of a folder and how that's different because i'm looking at your you've got some folders behind you and mm -hmm. they act their properties and their capabilities are different than the folders on the computer and we use <sighs> i mean the original object-oriented uis were was desktop where we had it was it was the folder was in a, it was using that metaphor of the desktop mm -hmm. and we had that trash can and i i love the example of like we're when, one example of breaking the laws of the laws of physics in a unintuitive way is you remember when, you know, to delete a folder, you would drag it to the trash can. Right. But to eject a disc, you mm -hmm. would also drag it to the trash can. Right. And right. it was scary every single time. You're like, really? Is this how I'm going to eject the disc? Oh, please don't delete everything off of this disc. Um, right. Because it was basically, so that I would say is one of those things. Like, one thing, you know, modes, I guess, modes is something that is, um, that is inherently work. There's going to be, um, there's going to be problems with modes, um, as far as intuition, because often things in the real world don't have these modes where like, right. You have a trash can, you throw stuff in the trash can, it's all going to get deleted. Right. Right. And the other thing too, is that's unique about, you know, designing for the web or digital experiences is that the medium that you design in is the same medium as the production. So to use the building analogy again, you're gonna draw a plan out on paper and then you may make a, a model at scale and then there's the actual building. So that's three different mediums. Uh, if I build a wireframe in an online tool, um, you know, uh, it's, it's probably using HTML in the background. So you're really using the same thing the, to build the design that you're gonna build the actual product with. So sometimes things can get confusing as to when you're talking about the real thing or the actual design itself. Right, um, right. And I mean, some people would talk about the issues with that. I mean, there's, 
you know, we, there's proponents of designing in the browser that you should, that all designers should, and I, I don't even know if I want to open up that bag of worms right now, but they, they, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, that like the designer should be um, using, like using the medium of the actual, of the web. If you're designing for the web, you should be doing all of your wireframes in HTML and CSS. Um, what do you say to that? No, yeah, you, you shouldn't. And in some large scale systems where you know everything is dynamic anyways, and you really just need to block things out, um, you may need something that's a little bit more comprehensive. Um, additionally, with the design, then now you're uh, you know unless the some sort of application is inherently doing it in CSS and HTML, but you can't have design metadata like notes and other mm -hmm. things around that a workflow to you know get it from one designer to another so um uh i i say use the tool at hand I, you know i've done designs before in like powerpoint right because, because i was on site and i couldn't get any design tool approved to be on their system so oh yeah so, I've you know. a keynote. I, I, I 100% agree. And I just know that like, it's you're multitasking too much. You're thinking about like, I want to, you should have good knowledge on what is possible um, so that you're not designing crazy stuff. Um, right. <laughs> but exactly. you should definitely, I, I think for me personally, designing in code or in the browser would be way too much. Um, I would be so hamstringed by thinking about where my semicolon is supposed to go mm -hmm. versus um, right. thinking about what's the best user experience. Right. Now I will, I will say this, if you don't mind, uh, even if you do, if you design outside of the browser, I, I am a big proponent of tools that translate into let's just call it like the proto HTML mm -hmm. proto code. Um, I'm not a big fan of what I call wallware where you make all these pretty wireframes and you can show it to your stakeholders. They love it. They put it up on the wall and that's all you can do with it. Um, so mm -hmm. I am a big proponent of being able to translate into it, but I'm just, and you don't have to inherently, you know, start off designing in the browser. Right, right. Yeah, I get that. Um, and, I, and I agree as well. Um, and, and a lot of tools are doing that. So what, um, so now we're on the subject. Um, mm -hmm. What tools are you using at, um, at Etsy? Um, well, uh, well, first of all, if we're going to talk about Etsy, I, I, you know, just want to make sure that I say that, you know, uh, I'm purely speaking on, on my, uh, my own behalf. And these are my own thoughts, not Etsy's. But uh, um Right now, the job that I'm in, I'm not really doing that much design work. So right. I wouldn't say I have any tools in particular. Okay. Um, but uh, we have like our own in-house kind of like design suite that we use. And it's web, it's browser based and, and, right. and what have you. So, and truly all I do is use, uh, use it to do some like very high level kind of like design work. We have designers that are much more user interface focus than I am. So I'm more of the, that bridge between, you know, the, the data folks in the back. And um, I, I, I will say I do use uh, CMAP a lot. Okay. Um, so that's like a concept, uh, concept mapping tool. All right. I've never played with that one. CMAP. All right. Yeah, it's great. It's uh, out of um, the university of West Florida, I believe it is. Okay. I, I should, I should know. I, I literally worked right next door to them. Um, but I think it's University of West Florida uh, that that uh, has it, and it's um, I think it's open source. I'm not sure. Don't don't quote me on that. But you can, and they think they do have a commercial license. I can't remember how it was done, but you, you can download it and and you know personally use it for free. Uh, and they I guess they just ask for a donation. But it's a it's a really good tool. It's very fast. You know how people at conferences take sketch notes. Yeah. Uh, while I'm in a meeting, I take data what I call data notes, and. Uh, you know, when people, I just quickly put stuff and arrange it in CMAP. And then after the meeting, we can all take a look at it and see if I, I captured um, kind of like the associations and concepts that people were talking about in the meeting. Ooh, data notes, data notes and CMAP. So let's, uh, let's back up here, actually, and mm -hmm. talk a little bit about uh, your role at, at Etsy. So you are senior staff data modeler and ontologist. And this is not a common job title. <laughs> a, lot of people, a lot of people don't have this. I'm sure you have fun at dinner parties explaining it. But like, can you, like, what, what are you actually doing? So the bottom line is I am 
describing all the things that are important to Etsy. Okay. So, you know, Etsy is a e-commerce site that, that provides uh, vendors, sellers to, um, to showcase um, handmade and vintage items. Uh, some of them are very unique, uh, very, uh, and very niche. And then uh, there's buyers that uh, need to browse our catalog to find and discover what they want uh, to buy. So uh, my job is to uh, be able to describe those very unique niche items uh, and some of the other concepts around them so that buyers can can easily find what they're looking for or discover something that they didn't think that they knew that they wanted or needed, but mm. uh, can present it to them. So, so you're, the things that are important to Etsy is, and that kind of encompasses also the things that are important to those buyers or, or this new uh, niche of things are now being sold like custom stained glass wall panels like all of a sudden now okay now we need to have length and width and and thickness uh which was not data that so in this particular niche category there's a whole new set of metadata that needs to be sorted and filtered by exactly and understanding what's the right metadata at the right time so you know a, a buyer would be very interested in color and and all of those dimensions so it knows that fits in their house where they, they want it. But uh, say for shipping, uh, you really don't need to know the color. Um, so being able, um, be, being able to present the right metadata at the right time and understand the context of the metadata. So like the meta metadata, if you will. Oh yeah, let's, I definitely want to talk about meta metadata, but um, mm-hmm. um, first, can you, can you give some like fun examples? Like what are some like super crazy niche categories that you've had to kind of build out the metadata for? Um, let's see. Uh, a lot of them are, are very unusual. There's a lot of things that are themed. So, you know, like if you think like cosplay and, and things of that nature. So there's a lot of imaginations and uh, uh, you can get some pretty interesting things, but yeah. So you have to think about, you know, how it relates to uh, broader categories. Um, So like costumes, if you will, Uh, but uh, also other themes, like is this a comic book type thing or, um, you know, is it, does it involve like, a certain niche with like music. So th- those are some of like, uh, some of like the uh, more interesting kind of things that I have to take a look at. So cosplay, you might have to connect it to, uh, let's say it's a cosplay outfit. You might connect it to certain like, um, uh, I guess, characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also you need size, of course. Mm-hmm. And and then you need is it like I mean do you put gender in there color like right yeah all all of that color um, it it might be uh, you know different themes like I said like comic is it is mm-hmm. it like one that's for comic. comic books or movies or you know and then you know there's some even some like music types that people dress up and uh for so you know like uh, electronic dance music where people have like certain certain um styles and costumes so so there's a, a just a lot of different things that you just take a look at and and see how they relate to each other and you know um you know if, if you buy the, the things may be sold separately but they complement each other so being able to make those associations as, as well too so just a lot of things to think about so let's say I'm dressing up. I want to dress up as Six from Battlestar Galactica, mm-hmm. and which has been a dream of mine for a while. So I want that, like that red dress. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of? Let's say this comes up. Let's say Battlestar Galactica has another resurgence, and all of a sudden you're like, I, I, I mean, let, let me let me guess guess at what the process is at a high level, and you tell me mm-hmm. where I'm wrong. So you, something a trend bubbles up, and let's say it's Battlestar Galactica cosplay, which before maybe you haven't like that created a whole taxonomy around, and now it's like okay, a lot of people are selling this now, or a lot of people are searching for it, maybe. Um, so we need to actually create 
a custom set of metadata specifically for Battlestar Galactica cosplay. Um, so how does the research process start? Like, how do you start figuring out what that set of metadata is going to be? Um, are you talking to the buyers, the sellers, both? And, and kind of how do you find out what metadata is most important? Right. So uh, it's a mixture of all, all of the above. So you, you do, you know, you do user research, you do um, a little bit of like literature, re, you know, literature review type research to, to find out, you know, get the ground truth, like who is six, mm -hmm. um, uh, things of that nature. And then uh, um, see what's trending to see what's important, you know, for, for that. So, you know, are there accessories that go with that, that you may want to, you know, have as uh, expose that or float that as, up as offering. So. Oh, you know, so then you're connecting product to product. So, right. all right, you're looking for the six outfit. Here's the six outfit, but like, here's also the, um, you know, the uh, replica of the gun that she carries or something like that. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So can you give us a, like a tip on, I mean, um, some good interview questions you might ask. So if I, if you're on the phone with a Battlestar Galactica cosplay fan um, and you're interviewing them, like mm -hmm. how do you get into, how do you make sure not to ask leading questions to like get into what would you want to be searching by? Well, I, first of all, start off with Freeform. Just tell me, because I'm pretty sure somebody who does cosplay is, you know, well into what they mm -hmm. want to do. So tell me about six. And, you know, as they start talking, when they come up with salient points, you know, then that's when you start asking more detailed questions and possibly questions where you have to say a yes or no um, to, to kind of get those ideas. And then, um, you, you know, as some of that, the the same things uh, come up over and over again across your 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 research, then you can have a good idea. Like, oh, that might be important. So, uh, like, it has to be read. If it's if it's, uh, well, it has to be read to be authentic. So mm -hmm. you might have, you know, authentic color equals red. You know, and then there might be variants. There might be. Um, uh, uh, let, let's say there's a huge six following in Hawaii and, you know, there's like the Hawaiian themed one or, oh my gosh, so you, you know, <laughs> you know, things, things of that nature. So, and if it's, if it's big enough and significant enough, then you want, might want to model that as well too, to, to what, what makes Hawaiian six different than standard authentic six. So. That's my Halloween costume this year. It's inspired by this conversation. It's the the mm. theoretical Hawaiian six from my conversation with Rem Pope. Yeah. Uh, uh, excellent. Yeah. Well, we take we take uh, Halloween pretty seriously at Etsy, so that might be a. Uh, uh, I can imagine. Might be a, I can yeah. imagine if I actually do it, I'll send you a picture. Excellent. Um, so, so once you, you found this set of information, you're like, this is how we need to be, this is how we need to be structuring, uh, a, a new Battlestar Galactica cosplay product, mm -hmm. all the, the, I'm guessing there's probably existing cosplay products out there. How do you go about with the like, kind of the governance of those instances? How do you go? Like, do you contact the buyers and say, Hey, you need to like go and retag all your 60 items that you're selling. Do y'all manually do it? Uh, it, it's a mixture of both. I mean, we, we really try to work with our sellers so that, you know, the, I'll call it the Goldilocks amount of information, you know, they want to sell products. They don't want to be metadata managers. So, mm -hmm. uh, so we try to help them out in every way. And if there's new nuances to certain products, um, you know, we try to help take care of that for them. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's it's uh, it's a little bit of both, but um, you know that's one of the reasons why we're trying to make these models on the back end is is just to make it very very easy for not only the sellers to be able to you know uh, input and maintain their their metadata, but also for the buyers um, to make it very easy. So like yeah. when they're searching through filters and things of that nature, that the the metadata and the filters match up. You know, and I mean, I'm so. sure it's uh, a seller would probably be very motivated 
to maintain that because that's going to help them sell their products, right? So well, yeah, well, think of it like maintaining your car. I mean, everybody wants to have a, a, a well-maintained car, but you really, really want to drive it. So there's a yeah. lot of times where you know people don't check the oil, all, all you know, all that often. So you know, people need help with having a little sticker up there that says, you know, next next service change is at like you know thirty thousand miles and. Uh, it would be great if uh, somebody could come to your house and change your oil for you and things of that nature. Um, so we, you know, we want to offload a, as much as possible from, from the seller. So, um, and that, that's one of the, one of the things that's what I'm looking at is being able to help that. Mm, okay. So, and, and, and by being able to make some of those descriptions on the back end that can help um, alleviate some of that from the seller having to put in so much information. That's so fascinating. Um, that sounds like a lot of fun. Is it, is it like, I mean, it, it's like you just get a new category and you're like, all right, we got to build, we got to figure out how to structure this new category. Yeah. Yeah. So um, de definitely, definitely. So um, uh, mainly I, I work with uh, our taxonomists and some, some other, um, other knowledge management type folks. And, and uh, we have a fun time when we, when we review stuff, it's, it's really cool. I like it. So, um, so let's talk about meta metadata. So, okay. what is your definition of meta metadata, and can you give us some examples? Yeah, sure. So, um, meta metadata is uh, so I think that's more of a business term than a technical term. I know a lot of data architects, database architects would would kind of like uh, hold their nose up at the term, but uh, really, it's data uh, metadata about metadata or data about yep. metadata and that's just to be able to characterize it and sometimes you know that's done through facets um sometimes that's just done through like attribute grouping um if you kind of get more into that that data architecture side but it really you know if you want to know all of your geographic data so addresses um cities um, towns, I, you know, everything that you have and be able to manage that, you could group that into kind of like geographic and that's your quote unquote meta metadata. Mm. Um, you know, so. What about like um, if this field is required or not, would you can, what would you consider that? Is that meta metadata? Like the title of the product is a required field. The fact that it is required, but this, um, this other field is not required. Yes. So when you're modeling what, what your actual piece of data is, yes, it would be data about that field. Is it required? How many can you have? Um, uh, is this a multi-select or a single select? Correct. Does it have enumerations like a controlled list you can pick from? Is it, you know, domain range kind of constraints, kind of things of that nature? So, yeah. So that's um, so in, in the process that I teach, that's I, we call it attribute requirements. Same thing, mm -hmm. meta metadata. It's the requirements around the each individual attribute. Um, right. and we, what about like conditional? Like, how do you, <laughs> how do you get into conditional logic? Like, if they select this, then there is these other three fields. Mm -hmm. Or if this object is of this type, like let's say, for example, um, it's a digital download versus a physical product. Right. So it depends on. And that, I, you know, that depends always sounds like a cop out, but it, it depends on the architecture of your system. So uh, if you can have that as like persistent data, um, then you would model that out on the data, but that might be more business logic and how to process the data that's going. So it depends on what you're doing, why, you know, uh, is your system real time or is, is it is it something where you're referencing things? If it's real time, then it, you may want to have it kind of like as as business logic that you know your code is actually doing the, those cases to figure out where data goes and what's exposed. Um, if it's more referential, um, you may bake that into your your kind of like data model. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, again, it all depends. We know we have all of these fields. We have all these new fields for our Battlestar Galactica cosplay. So if Battlestar, if the product is Battlestar Galactica cosplay, these are some extra attributes that we need to give to the, the seller so that we can then 
And then when the when a user is when a buyer is typing in something BSG, um, mm-hmm. we know to, to provide these extra attributes as sorts or filters. Um, how are you document? How are you capturing that? What do your artifacts look like? Is this all in CMAP? Um, how how are you capturing that meta metadata? Right. So the, you know, there's there's different stages. There's like the the design stage, and I that's where I'd capture it in in CMAP, but then there's the actual, you know, physical system that's going to manage that for you. So design in something lightweight like CMAP or some other tool, um, you know, vet that design, and then it's actually making a model in the system. So, you know, most systems like uh, ontology systems, you know, are dealing with uh, I guess legacy systems, I mean, they, they still do it, but the legacy way of doing it was like an XML RDF mm-hmm. type type uh, thing. And then we've gone on to JSON. I know I'm getting a little bit geeky here in some of the technical That's stuff. That's okay. But, but uh, and then now now everything is in graph databases. So, so you know, and I, I love graph databases. I, I, I think I was born for graph databases. It's just the way to be able to, not only model something, but to store the information. So, um, so yeah. That, so like I guess. Synaptica or something like that, like a knowledge graph type. Yep, exactly. Okay. All right. Wonderful. All right. So my last question for you, I know we just have a few minutes left. Um, this is a question that I love asking information architects is how do you, how do you organize your life? What are your, well, what are some well, tools you use? Please, please don't look at the, what, what's going on behind me. So I'm sure um, it's very organized chaos. Yeah. Yeah. What's going on behind me. That's definitely not organized chaos. Um, and and Just small, chaos. small, small <laughs> disclosure is that I'm getting ready to move. So, um, and, and I had to move from my, my work office. So I've always had a work office um, and uh, when went completely virtual uh my home office was never large enough to have everything that I had in my work office. But so what do I do to organize personally? Well, I use um, a knowledge management program called the brain. Uh, Love it um, because it's a graph, it's graph based, you know, and it's got some pretty cool constraints on it. So um, you don't, it's not like completely free form. It's very focused in the way that you in hierarchical, but ways to kind of break that hierarchy too. So I use the brain. Um, let, let's see. Um, what are some other things that I do? So you're uh, using that to organize personal life and work life? Um, for the most part, uh, I, in the past, I've used it for work life. Just in, in my current work environment, it's a, just a, uh, kind of a little bit hard to do. But but yeah, everything in my personal life. Like um, uh, I've got maybe four or five brains that I use that that's the, the notion <laughs> I call. So, so I have about four or five brains that I use. It's like offloading your brain. Like you have your brain, but then you have these other brains that are like, it, Oh, cool. It, yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, um, it, it, it's my personal document. So, uh, you know, I inherited pretty much all of my family's like personal documents. So, um, I've scanned them all. I scanned about 50 years worth of documents and threw them into the brain. Oh. Um, and, uh, all my interests are there thought, you know, thought processes, things that I don't want to forget. So I think that's the way I, I organize and that's organized chaos. So my brain. So I'm, I'm very excited to look into that. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing. So mm-hmm. before we wrap up, anything else that you want to leave us with anything that you're working on any conference talks you have going coming up, anything else that we need to, that the listeners of object and UX podcast should know about. Uh, uh, now, well, you know, the information architecture conference is coming up. Uh, okay. it's going to be all online. Um, so looking forward to that. Uh, I am for the, you know, everybody says this, but I, I am, uh, hopefully, oh, I'm going to say 45 to 50% done on writing a book on about all of this. So, um, and, uh, you know, I continue to do kind of like the ontology dojo where I try to make ontology a little bit more accessible to everybody and, and use ontological thinking and, um, and a shout out to Jesse DuVernay for helping me kind of come up with that concept and design. Uh, 
Um, so yeah, th- those are that in this weird, crazy um, pandemic world, you know, it's enough to keep me busy. Awesome. Well, we will link to all of that. And definitely once your book is out or we re- available for pre-order, let me know. And I will make sure to push that on t- into the newsletter. Um, so I think I'm sure everybody that's interested in object or in UX will be interested in your book. Um, we'll probably book club it too. Excellent. We love, we love doing our book club. So I, I, um, I, it, it's 2022, it's a, 2022 we'll book club it. Knock on wood. Okay. So, All right. Um, right. It, it's pretty unique. On the edge I think, of our seats. <laughs> I, I think you'll, I think you'll enjoy it. Ren, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a fascinating conversation. I learned a lot and um, yeah, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. All right. Have Party. a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed this episode. Please visit objectorientux.com slash podcast for show notes. Our soundtrack is Fighter by Ruby Bell, courtesy of Sugaroo Records. Happy OUXing!